Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mandatory Redistribution Party. My name's Sean Morley. I'm recently unemployed, I'm two days into a two-week quarantine, and I'm feeling pretty bad. Welcome to the Coronavirus Special. Now, I'm not convinced that any of you really need to hear anything additional about the coronavirus right now. But also, at the moment, it's the only topic that can take up residence in my crammed skull. And I daren't imagine what things are like with you at some point in the future listening to this. In an ideal world, you don't even know what I'm talking about. How quickly this all faded from memory after the vaccines were chemtrailed across the globe by a secretive philanthropic group of skywriters. In a less ideal world, you can barely hear this podcast through your protective headgear and the damaged speakers of your disinfectant-soaked audio device. Nevertheless, it is not an ignorable subject. Covid drifts through the air and sings to me a song that demands coverage. As ever, if you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon. It'll be linked in the episode description below. Feel free to pop in a coin. But obviously, if you have been placed in a position of precarity by the virus, then please do not make contributing to a leftist comedy podcast your priority. If I was a political cartoonist, I would encapsulate the UK corona response via a drawing of a slavering Rottweiler labelled eugenics that has suddenly been let off the lead and is hurtling jaws agape towards an injured rabbit labelled me and my friends, while the owner, a Mr Boris Johnson, heard of him have ya? mugs towards the camera with a cheeky, some mothers do have em, war am I like style grin. I've had friends reduced to tears by reassuring texts from their landlord and many others crying for precisely the opposite reason. I've not done any crying, but I've had a stress headache for four days straight. So something's brewing, and i just got to finish this episode before the levee breaks. Maybe it's not all bad, though. I look forward to those heralding the return of the spirit of the Blitz, actually rolling their sleeves up and making something happen. Although I do think their idea of the spirit of the Blitz is just isolated Brits singing Agadoo and reciting the two Ronnies for candle sketch at each other from their balconies. The Blitz spirit no longer refers to the far-reaching mass social and infrastructure changes put in place to protect Britain from an existential threat, but instead has been re-envisaged as a laissez-faire paradise, where British people went about their normal day ignoring air raid sirens and casually dodging incendiary explosives on their way to the overflowing supermarkets. Take shelter. We don't take instructions from Europe, thank you very much. I survived World War One. I. I think I could handle a little bomb falling directly on my head. The coronavirus lays bare what happens if you intravenously inject stubborn triumphalism into the veins of a country that has already gone hog-wild on nationalistic exceptionalism. From tops off lager dads refusing to obey the Spanish authorities as they enjoy a booze cruise in the fourth most infected country in the world, to the consensus across the British journalistic class that publicly requesting that we not be allowed to die for the economic expediency of the rich is the most craven form of armchair intellectualism. This country was ill long before it got sick. But obviously all ire and fury should be reserved for the powerful, the government. Bailing out the banking sector, insurance companies, landlords, creating a policy built around herd immunity before having to reverse it before a quarter of a million people would die. Creating policies based around, don't do this, but you can if you want. Don't go outside, but you can if you like. Don't bankrupt your tenants, but you can if you like. 
don't go in pubs and theatres, but they're all still open and desperately trying to attract your custom to not go bankrupt. So we won't stop you if you want to go in. I still think there's some clear correlation between the behaviour of individuals and the cultures and norms that are created by the powerful, and it kind of shows how useless it ever was to try and advance the goals of emancipatory politics of the left. By argument and reason, when all of us now personally know people who are refusing to self-isolate, despite being at high risk, because they have some kind of hunch that it'll be okay. Sometimes it's just too aggrandizing to call conservatism an ideology, when it just regularly feels like a jumble of post-hoc justifications for people to do whatever it was they wanted to do in the first place. The ballot box was always in the hands of someone who is currently risking death so that they can go to the hairdressers. Landlordism is going to bankrupt the generation that already saved the country from a major financial crisis by having all their hopes, prospects and future extracted to shore up a bloated financial sector. Because as it stands, it is a goliath in our economy. This is the part of the economy that is unproductive and extractive. They don't make anything other than debt. They want house prices to increase because that makes them money. They want you to buy a sofa on finance because that's what makes them money. They want you to need a Wonga loan because that's what makes them money. More and more of our economy is made up of those profiting, not from making anything useful like a Twix or a selfie stick, but from rent extraction. Being a cutthroat Tory overseeing a manufacturer economy is like being the captain of a ship, no matter how badly you want to treat your guys. The script originally said sailors, but for some reason I've just subbed it out for your guys right now. I wish there was a gender neutral term that had the same tone as the phrase, these are my guys. And that's what's crucial. It's not important to me that you picture these sailors as men, but you've got to picture them as your guys. Being a cutthroat Tory overseeing a manufacturer economy is like being the captain of a ship. No matter how badly you want to treat your guys and hoard resources for yourself, they still need to be capable of sailing the ship. <coughs> they need to be in good enough condition that they'll keep you safe by being competent sailors. Similarly, in a manufacturer economy, workers need to be healthy enough to actually do the work. They're not expendable. But in the 1980s, Thatcher moved us away from all that. Lots of communities became, in her eyes, obsolete. And as we've seen, that renders many others expendable. From the extractive politics of zero-hours contracts, money going up, as we've seen with the diabolical level of cuts to vital services, employment precarity for working class people, an existential attack on disabled people, and when a tower block filled with people of colour burns down, they're not exactly rushing to house them or help them. They didn't even set up a Kickstarter. That's what worries me during crisis. The herd immunity strategy was going to kill a quarter of a million people, according to the very science that people were using to justify it. Now I think we're going to go into this kind of quarantine lockdown that other countries around the world have done, and maybe we'll get through it. But for a moment, just for a moment, the government revealed it was going to let us all die. It told us that it was prepared to just let us fend for ourselves. And let me just check the polls. Yep, public satisfaction with Boris Johnson has gone up. Now I was imagining the pandemic might be an incident where more people drift to the left. But based on this alone, I think it's going to radicalise me. And I thought I was done. I'll see you in the bunkers, comrades. Uh, perhaps you could sort of take it on the take it all in one, in one go and allow the disease, as it were, to, to move through the, 
the population. You said that the NHS is, is, you know, has your full support, uh, but according to a report from the National Audit Office, the NHS currently does not have the nursing staff that needs despite efforts to boost the workforce. There are still 43,000 vacancies. How are they going to find beds and staff to cope with what we potentially could see an increase of patients? Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into it. Before the pandemic, what is your most upsetting experience of a landlord? Do you know what? I've broadly been all right with landlords. I actually don't have any major terrible stories. Yeah, my, yeah. my neighbour kicked down. Some students moved in that were all um, railway maintenance crew. Is that a they degree? Were like a, they That's... were doing a four-year master's degree on being the people that get sent out to lay and maintain track. All right. We had a really shitty, like, terrace student house where there wasn't anywhere that could be a living room because the living room got turned into a bedroom. Mm. So our only choice for a living room was, like, a tiny plastic conservatory where all the mice lived. Uh, We got no privacy if the neighbours wanted to be social because we can't pretend not to be in because we have to sit in the conservatory. There's nowhere else to be. It's very cold. And they came in, and they were very critical of the fact that we had real guitars and said that (laughs) because they're really big into Guitar Hero. And then they, like wanted to drink with us and we're like yeah okay let's get to know the neighbors but then the one who's i shared a wall with kept talking about this kick door it's like a fire door that you can kick in that lets you escape through someone else's house if there's a fire right and he went wouldn't it be funny if i kicked that in and i went no (laughs) (laughs) not really i I sleep on the other side of that kick door and then that night he kicked it in (laughs) oh my god he kicked it in, and I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, he woke me up kicking in the fire door. <laughs> and he went, mate, look, I've kicked it in. Look, <laughs> look, as if you didn't know. He had <laughs> yeah, said what like, he was going to do, and he delivered on his promise. You didn't yeah. need a look. You knew what had he, happened. He delivered to me a shin-height, gleaming beam of light into my otherwise dark room. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then poked his head through and went, ha-ha, hiya. <laughs> But what did the and what was the landlord's response to this crime? Well, I had to tell. Like, the first thing I said was like, you know, I've got to tell the landlord about this because this completely voids our like fire safety stuff. Like we've probably voided some of our insurance on this now because the nature of the fire door is you can't pop it back in. Mm. You break it to open it. Mm. It's called a kick door. Kick door. Yeah, you have to yeah. kick it. Right. You know that that's not a, actually a good design of a door. No. That's why we don't have like punch doors. It's not really. Yeah. Doors. I feel like door is a generous description of what essentially is. It's just a kick hole. It's just a bit of the wall that is absolutely destructible. Yeah. It's not a door. A <laughs> yeah. door by if, definition. In case is- of. <laughs> Able to open In case of emergency, I've secretly made part of your wall absolutely shit. (laughs) (laughs) So if you are in a trouble, just batter here. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I told the landlord, he kind of had this grandfatherly approach, and he told us this. He said, 
I want to be people's grandfather so that they sort of <laughs> trust me, but right. I like, but I can like go in on being really disappointed on them if it all goes wrong. Oh my god! And he sent a letter to the other person because I was I was staying with like an ex partner of mine at the time. Mm. So he sent this letter saying I've had a report that you've tried to break into the the room of a a young woman who was sleeping by smashing through the wall. <laughs> oh my god! And it would be a real shame if I had to like tell your parents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like he went in really hard. I didn't ask him to do any of this. But then this guy who I just met the other night, like mm. day one I meet him, day two he's knocking on the conservatory and saying, I'm really sorry, Mr. Morley, I never should have kicked through the kick door. Um, I'll be good in future and I'm really sorry. And then that was it. I never saw him again. Like he lived next to us, but like... What? I feel like the landlord went too big on him. I just wanted to tell him about the insurance, but things went nuts. And now, six or seven years later, our landlord here has signed us up to the letting agency owned by that guy. The circle of life. Absolutely a story taken from The Lion King. (laughs) King is another feudal title like Lord, I guess. I've got numerous bad landlord stories. My most harrowing one is when my flat flooded with liquid poo in a storm uh, via the toilet, which you probably figured out with, with the poo element. Which was traumatic in itself. You know, it's like 8 p.m. at night. Me and my flatmate were both going out to gigs. And then the storm's raging outside. Uh, A terrifying glug sounds from the bathroom. Go in. The toilet water is slowly rising uh, in a a kind of brown. It's brown. It's murky. It's coming up. Um, I begin. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full blob, right? Stink, stink blob. Um, Full blob. (laughs) I I start to. uh, It's got, yeah, like just like the. Blob, as it rises out of the toilet, you can see little skeletons in it of people it's previously devoured. I start panicking straight away, start to throw towels into the bog and also try and like block it off pretty quickly. It's fountaining over like, yeah. a, like a bleak water feature in a fetishist's house. I'm saying to my flatmate, like, we need to get, get everything because it's kind of a basement flat. And I'm like, like, get everything up. Anything you value, get, get upstairs now. But within minutes, it's like an inch of liquid shit all over the floor and anything that was anywhere near the floors destroyed. Like, um, I had left some, it's actually quite depressing. Uh, the, the handwritten uh, musical exercises, my granddad who has passed away had written for me when I was very young, when he taught me to play the trumpet. Oh no, uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. It was kind of, you know, and I, I, I only noticed them when I returned to the flat when our landlords asked us to help clean it. (laughs) But the landlord, like, they had loads of properties and they took days to sort out anywhere for us to live. We were, like, on our friends' couches for, uh, you know, a while, which I think was, like, massively out of order for, like, a big letting agent. And then it later turned out there was, like, some sort of pump because it had flooded. But we found this out from the groundskeeper handyman guy who was... Weirdly, a guy who always did the Elvis lookalike contests in Blackpool, which is a whole other thing. And he said that it had flooded before, like a year or so before we'd moved in. And they installed like a pump that was like a legal requirement that had just not come on. He was chucking stuff into a skip. And he was like, yeah, yeah, there's this pump. Look at this. And he picks up the floorboards and there's this like pump thing and it had just never come on. And they were supposed to check it regularly and blatantly hadn't. Yeah, Um, not only were they assholes with us after the flood of liquid shit, they their 
complete incompetence probably exacerbated at least mm. partially the flood of liquid shit. So that's my probably most upsetting. That one's real good. Um, I didn't I didn't cry until a week after it had happened, and like I got also um, best time for it. Well, the the week after it happened, partly because of the intensification of suddenly having to move in together, my relationship collapsed, and then I got offsteaded in my teaching job. That absolutely did me in. That's bad. Yeah, quite bad. My initial question to Sean was, what's the most upsetting experience of a landlord you'd had pre-pandemic? So I think we can shift to pandemic landlord tearful experiences with our guest. It's Amy Gledhill. The famous crying tenant. (laughs) Renter, the famous crying renter, Sean. Come on. I decided at the last second that tenant is slightly funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Renter's got this horrible bit in the middle where it goes ren the n into the t. I actually find mm. kind of ugly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Tenant sounds great. Hi. To the pod. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. What do you want me to do? Would you like to tell us more about what made you the famous crying tenant? I got an, a really lovely text from a landlord, which obviously is um, unexpected. They're not always known to be the nicest of people. And I, like a scumbag, screenshotted it straight away, popped it on Twitter, and then it went a bit mad. I was expecting my usual three to four likes, zero zero retweets. <laughs> That's the kind of vibe I've got on Twitter. It went all over the bloody place. Can I say who retweeted it? Yeah. Mon- yes, please. Monica Lewinsky. <gasps> <laughs> wow. Yep. Monica Lewinsky. Big time. Retweet. Do you think she rents? <laughs> I don't know if it's in the Bury area of Manchester, but <laughs> I'm sure she does somewhere. Yeah. Everyone rents. Everyone rents. It went a bit crazy. So newspapers started getting in touch. The Telegraph. <gasps> they've been the nicest ones, actually. They've asked my permission and that was really good. And all the rest of them have just nicked it off me. Oh, that's interesting, given that The Telegraph is also the paper that put important government health advice before a paywall the other day. Did they? (laughs) Yeah, but they must have asked permission first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they've they've very strangely been the nicest ones. Mm. Weirdest one, the Daily Mail, who took two pictures off my Instagram without asking. Both of them are... Not like sexy pictures, because I don't really put them on Instagram, but if you had to pick which are the sexiest ones I've got, it would be them too. The Daily Mail being disrespectful and horny. (laughs) Who'd who'd have thunk? (laughs) This tenant is crying because she's had some of her precarity alleviated. Where's the sex angle? How do we get this on page three? (laughs) The Sun featured me in a roundup of spoilt children at Christmas like six years ago. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I, w- I was talking to someone about like finding it really funny to like search for all the spoilt children because like there's loads of like American rich kids who are like, fuck off, I've got the wrong type of car for my 16th. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was saying, I bet you can just ape after that. So I got a pair of socks and set them on fire <laughs> outside. <laughs> I said, 
My mum got me these socks from Georgia Asda, but I wanted Primark. Fuck my life. Fuck mom. Fuck Christmas. And then, the, and then a few days later, Glenn Moore sent me a thing because he works. He's like um he's a journalist, yeah, or he's like a re- newsreader or something. Sorry if I've got his job title wrong. Hmm. He sent me a thing going. Do you know you're in the sun? Uh, <laughs> and they thought I was like eight years old. <laughs> That's God. the best thing I've ever heard. It's wild. That's amazing. And you ended up doing interviews as well, right? Just off of the tweet, right? Yeah, yeah. So I did Radio 5 Live a couple of times. Mm. All the regional ones you can think of. The biggest region, Lad. La- oh, yeah. And I did a, a video on Lad Bible. That's got like 400,000 views. Corbin's in it. When it goes straight from you making very good points to then Jeremy Corbyn going on it, that was like... It's really exciting. It's really good. <laughs> I really screamed and I saw that. Papa's in it. Wow. Me and Papa, Papa are in the video. Papa. <laughs> What's yeah. a little bit, um, not disappointing, but it really took up like three full days of my time. So I was doing yeah. interviews on Australian radio stations. NBC in New York got in touch. Like It was really taking up a lot of time. And considering it's a tweet about basically how I have no income now <laughs> and I'm really glad that my landlord's been a, a decent human being, not one of them, uh, not one of these publications has offered me a quid. Uh, yeah, but think of the exposure. Oh my God. Think of the exposure when we were like <laughs> recording an interview for Radio 4 using our stuff in the middle of the night. <laughs> And we were just thinking, oh my God, the exposure. The exposure. The, uh, the pure exposure. If the same happened to me, I, I would just agree to all these things, even if the back of my mind is going like, what am I getting from this actually? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like having gone through it or, or during the process of going through it, like was there any part of your head being like, hang on, this is like work. This is like a lot of work and I'm unemployed. Um. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, because I was getting up and I'd look at my phone and it was still, there's like a lot of people that want to do like written interviews and things like that. So I was kind of like, as you do when you're a freelancer, any work that comes in, anyone sniffing around, you immediately go, yes, please. So I was like, oh, firing these back. Oh yes, of course I'll answer these questions. Of course I'll do your blog. Of course I'll do this. But I was doing it from like 8am till 2am for a few days and then I was like, what? I don't, I can't remember why I'm doing this. Yeah. I'm really bored of it. ITV, we're going to come around the house and film. And then I was like, well, now I have to clean all my house as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have time for that. <laughs> Just send us a sausage roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A toilet roll. Email would be me amazing. a samosa. <laughs> Email me a samosa. Yeah, I would. See, I'd do a it for C that. attached pecora. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that'd be amazing. No danger of COVID if we could email delicious food. I really think if they rolled that out, that would completely alleviate a lot of the yeah. problems we're seeing. Just three D, just three D printing onion bargies. Yeah, they're definitely not going to be good for you. So the day that Chris Landlord deigned to be good guy, Chris Landlord, good guy, Chris Landlord, you know, yeah, be, yeah, be more Chris Landlord, which is like the meme that came out of the tweet, yeah. right? Hashtag. Uh, be more Chris Landlord. Yeah. yeah. Did that hashtag exist? Yeah. It did exist. I don't think many people Aww. picked it up, but I think that's super lovely, actually. It's probably just Chris and just different alts. 
<laughs> no, he was really shy about it, wasn't he? He was really shy. I had to, it was so strange having to message him and be like, hello, it's Amy Tennant here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> just letting you know, I, I'm really sorry, but I screen grabbed the text you sent. So I felt awful doing this. I felt awful. <laughs> and I had to be like, I, I screen grabbed it and, and, and put it on Twitter as an example of fantastic landlording. And it's gone a bit mad. And then I had to message him and say like, hello, me again. Do, do you want to go on Five Live? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, poor guy was just like, um, well, I don't want them to know my full name. And it's all got a bit out of control, hasn't it? Yeah. But he did, he went on Five Live because he's listened to them and he did like them. And I think he was quite chuffed with that. But everything else, he was like, keep me out of it. What's going on? Sending that text saying that I'd screen grabbed him. I felt mucky, felt mucky inside. <laughs> but I liked your response in particular when, I can't remember who it was, might have been the Telegraph was asking you like, oh, do you think more landlords should be a bit more like Chris Landlord or whatever? And then you slammed him down. Slammed him. What was your slam? I slammed him and said something like, it shouldn't be up to people to be like Chris Landlord. It should be on the government. Boom. Boom. Get wrecked. Get wrecked. Because, yeah. <laughs> and it, I think it was the Telegraph as well. I'd be interested to see if they printed that. Yeah. But did they? Do we know? I don't know. I don't oh, buy the sure. Telegraph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? No way of verifying. It's going to be behind a paywall anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And then you will have actually yeah. be in net, you know, you won't, you'll be in net negative. <laughs> you'll be in the red to the Telegraph. And there's a reason they're all contacting Amy because they know, they know that Chris is going to be reluctant because, you know, he can't let all the other landlords see him being kind. <laughs> <laughs> he won't be allowed back in the closed Facebook groups. Yeah, <laughs> when they ask how to trick. Do you remember the one in 2017? Yeah. Um, so there's all these uh, landlord forums, which they kind of forget that you can just find online where landlords are up to like sneaky stuff, trying to get as much money as they can. And the one I vividly remember is in 2017, uh, some landlord, he got rumbled because what he was doing is he'd asked his tenants for more rent because his his little boy was sick and I don't even think he had a little boy. So he Can you give he, me more rent because my little boy is sick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that's that's the one that sticks with me. But that's more typical, shall we say, landlord behaviour. That's yes. not Chris Landlord, that's uh Roger Landlord. I don't, landlord. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I mean by that. But uh, I don't even think it makes sense. But <laughs> the the typical, the institutionally incentivized behavior of landlords is not kindness. And this is why, I mean, the fact that we live in a society where Amy has essentially screenshotted someone behaving with compassion towards another human being, and that is something that is surprising and unique, sufficient to generate enough internet traffic to get ad revenue for loads of institutions off the back of Amy's tweet, right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm not undermining what he said at all. I genuinely think it was a, a really brilliant gesture. Yeah, legend. But let's be clear, he hasn't said, hey, don't pay your rent. He's yeah. just said, if it gets really tough, don't worry, I'm not going to kick you out, which yeah. should be mm. baseline human decency, mm. really. But uh, it's not, is it? Yeah. It's not. A lot of I the responses... a little below baseline because a lot of... <laughs> what we're getting from the government is like, okay, so we'll let you get to like completely all the way into your overdraft. So you have like either zero to minus a thousand pounds. And at that point, we'll let you hover without putting you on the street. And if that's lauded as compassion, then something's <laughs> fucked. 
Yeah. Chris Langold's tweet came out before anything was announced, but the first, some of the early stuff the government did in their like absolute dog shit, slow drip, panic decision making when they're just trying to sustain capitalism and liberals keep confusing this for socialism. They put in place mortgage holidays for landlords. So they prioritise landlords first before renters, even like buy to let landlords to reassure them. Because they're not, they're not, this is the thing, there's two layers to it, isn't there? It's like, obviously they're going to reassure landlords because that's their voters, but they then need to reassure the banks who whose mortgages the landlords go into. So the constant house price inflation that needs to be reassured because that's such a fundamental part of our actually dead economy yeah. that that needed to be reassured first. It's a transfer of wealth from taxpayers to landlords and then to the banks. It's- yeah, it's going to be another remix of like when people talk about housing benefits, they go, oh, and we're just subsidising your housing. No, we're- no you're subsidising landlords. Housing benefits doesn't go, go to me. Housing benefits go straight up. Yeah. So you're subsidising a class of people whose job it is just to happen to have owned a property. Landlords' view of themselves, at the same time as having the thing of like, I'm going to create a fictional sick child to guilt my tenants into giving me more money. But landlords' concept of themselves is like, oh, actually, we do lots of work. You know, we, we, we provide housing. It's like, no, you don't provide housing. You've not built the house. You have just acquired property. Every now and then you might phone the cheapest plumber you can find, but you're going to offset that off tax. Like the model of landlords, there's 150,000 buy-to-let landlords in Britain with more than one property. Just the money they are making and how they're making it. A fifth of the population of the UK rent, and rent is much more expensive than a mortgage. So when we're renting, what we're actually doing is paying off the landlord's mortgage and giving them profit. So the landlord has purchased a property, we're paying the mortgage on, and then they're making money on it as an asset because year on year, its price is increasing. So they've got an asset that their actual tenants are paying for. And they're making money from the profit from the rent. And that would just be on one house. Copy and paste that across. It's parasitic. A landlord, clues in the name, lord, like is a almost feudal relationship that just shouldn't exist in a modern society. And now that like landlordism is under the spotlight because of the pandemic, like the rhetoric has brought out these kind of Schrodinger's landlords that are like <laughs> on one hand saying listen, I don't make money off of this. Like, I've got to send rental people out. I've got to do all this stuff. This is not a profitable job. Yeah. And yet at the same time saying, look, as a landlord, I have to make a profit. It's a business, so I need to make a profit. Well, if it's important <laughs> to make a profit, why are you doing landlording then? Because yeah. it sounds like you're not making anything off it at all. Yeah. Schrodinger's landlords, that's funny. <laughs> a lot of bootlicking journalists have made the excuse for the government that they've not actually done something on rent because the landlords will should just make the decision themselves. What? Well, why didn't we leave it to the banks to give the landlords help then? Let's just say even a few, even 5% of that 150,000 landlords decides to just pocket the rent from this mortgage holiday they've been given. That is a massive redistribution of wealth from taxpayers to a group of people who are already wealthy parasites. Shall I tell you my bad landlord story? Oh, yeah. Yes, please. Uh, so they, they moved us into a property that didn't have any plumbing. It was like a new build flat. And no, no plumbing? No plumbing. So they were like, you know, you can move in the 1st of July, say. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. No plumbing. But, and it's a new build. It's a new build. So something built- hadn't been turned on or something. Basically, there was no water at all. Oh, so not even outgo, just no plumbing at all? None. Zero. And right. they were like, 
look, it's going to be ready in like a couple of days. Just move in. And we were like, what? So there's there's no water. And I was like, there's no water, but just move in on the date we agreed. Pay, pay full rent and we'll, we'll get it sorted as soon as possible. This was in the height of summer, right? Uh. A really hot summer a few years ago. And the flat, this is a very northern thing to say, but the flat was above a Greg's. And the <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing. I loved it. And the Greggs, uh, the ovens of the Greggs were red hot yeah. and they would heat this flat up. And it was just the warmest, very, very, it's when I lived in London, very temporarily in zone five. And it was a, like a studio flat that yeah. was like a little tiny oven uh-huh. above some actual ovens. And there was no water and it was meant to be fixed in a few days. And it, in the end, I think it took nearly a month we, so we couldn't wash. What did you have to do then? How did you? Well, there was a. How did you go and wash and do with normal stuff? Okay, so for showers, we had to go to the local leisure centre, pay pay the price <laughs> for a swimming session, <laughs> and just the use, and just use the showers. Did, did you ever just have a swim as well, given that you've paid for it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I genuinely don't think I did. <laughs> How tragic is that? Just use the showers. Um, we couldn't wash up. So like you couldn't cook anything, yeah, obviously. Taking your plates to the leisure centre. Yeah, taking your plates to the yeah. leisure centre, of course. Yeah, the- hide them in your swimsuit. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, there was a shopping centre across the road from us. When that was open, we could use the public toilets. Yeah. But on a Sunday, it shuts at four, opens at ten. If you need the toilet, you know, any other time, <sighs> you either had to go to the pub, which were really, the pub down the road was really strict about like you had to pay yeah. to use the toilet or buy something. You had to be a patron, you know, yeah. so if you needed the loo, you'd have to, you'd have to go out and get like a lime and soda water. Shandy. A shandy. I'm not proud of this, but after a month we had a piss jug because yeah. you just have to. So we had a little jug with, and there was a drain outside and we... <laughs> We just, we just have to come down the back, back of Greg's, yeah. holding a little jug of hot piss. <laughs> Good morning, Linda. This is what Southerners <laughs> think the North is like, but it's what the South is like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is Zone Five. Listen up. Big respect for not just throwing it out of the window like a sort of Victorian slum dweller. Yeah, chuck it down in the in the alley Slot on bucket. the orphans. <laughs> But I can't have been doing much for the reputation of Northerners because I was I was the token Northerner walking around with my piss jug of a morning. So yeah, like, they don't know that my flat doesn't have plumbing. <laughs> They'll just be like, what are them weird Northerners doing with all that piss all the time? And you're down there thinking you're just joining in with London culture. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the high life. This is, this is the London I've been dreaming of. <laughs> So, Jack, can you provide, in summary, your opinion of landlords? Um, Landlords are a parasitic hangover from feudalism, a completely unproductive part of the economy that's profited from four decades of class war against the working class, the selling off of council houses, uh, for example, a class that necessitates, like, they only exist because there are people who can't afford to buy a house and need somewhere to live. They are absolute morally reprehensible leeches. Right. And um, who's your current landlord, Jack? Well, it's Chris' landlord, because we live together. But 
<laughs> I still, still like. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris, but you, 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 you're bad. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. Blitz, the German word for lightning and a Luftwaffe bombing campaign that dropped over 500 tonnes of high explosive on UK cities in 1940 and 1941. Over 60,000 people were killed in the Blitz, almost half in London, where more than a million houses were damaged or destroyed. How did people get through this trauma? Well, in the dead of night, Churchill's war cabinet ordered the summoning of a powerful ancient one. Goats and virgins and virgin goats were gathered from across the land. A drop of blood from each mixed with some fresh basil into a big soup, downed in one by King George. As Messerschmitt's loose death from the night sky, the king, his belly painfully full of perfectly seasoned blood, knocks on a secret door in the darkest, wettest catacombs of Buckingham Palace to beseech the spectre. The spectre that has always slumbered beneath our green and pleasant land, waiting to be summoned in our time of need. The password. Requests the voice from the other side of the door. The Word. Britain, says the king, holding back a hemoglobin belch. No, the full password. The king consults an ancient scroll, clears his throat, and tries once more. Great Britain. At that, the door creaks open. The Ancient One is loosed, its power bursting out of the palace catacombs into the underground stations and Anderson shelters. Good luck, Hitler. The British people have unleashed their true power, the Blitz Spirit. The Blitz Spirit, often mistaken for the poisonous moonshine brewed to circumvent rationing, is in fact Britain's best asset. Anytime something bad happens, a terrorist attack, a stock market collapse, a series of ideological welfare cuts inflicted by our own elected representatives. The Blitz spirit gets us through. We're all in this together, especially the poor. We are determined in the face of danger. Watch out, Hitler. We've got a cup of tea and a sing-song. Our upper lips are so stiff we are unable to express any emotion or even sip moonshine. We look weird. Unfortunately, the nostalgic spectre of the Blitz and the Blitz spirit that haunts the minds of white, middle-class boomers who've never been in a war does not fit with reality. Sure, thousands of ordinary people found ways to cope with the trauma of Goering's bombing raids, but the idea of willful, almost joyful stoicism was a propaganda creation, partly created at the time, but more so projected onto the past in the following decades. In popular consciousness, the Blitz is seen as cutting across class divides. Everyone lived beneath the same sky and was in the same danger from the Luftwaffe's bombs. But class division remained. Middle class people had gardens to build shelters in and the money to get concrete ones rather than the ramshackle Anderson shelters that could barely keep out rain, never mind an incendiary bomb. Kids were evacuated from the cities, but they didn't really go to middle class households. They went to working class households who needed the government subsidy they'd get. 
rationing hit the poor hardest, while the rich could still buy luxury food and high-end restaurants stayed open. Hotels even had exclusive bomb shelters for the right clientele. The effects of the bombs were not shared equally. It was much easier for the middle class to keep calm and carry on than the working class, or more so, the homeless. In his book, Our Flag Stays Red, the East End communist, anti-fascist and local councillor, Phil Pirotin, tells one story of working class resistance. The Communist Party distributed 100,000 leaflets and 5,000 posters in London's East End, calling for proper shelters and help for the homeless. Helped by the solidarity of waiters, protesters were able to occupy the air raid shelter of the Savoy Hotel, as Puritan writes. The contrast between the shelter and conditions for the rich and the poor called for exposure. This was done. One Saturday evening, we gathered some 70 people, among them a large sprinkling of children, and we took them to the Savoy Hotel. We had heard from the building workers of the well-constructed and luxurious shower which had been built for their guests. We decided that what was good enough for the Savoy Hotel parasites was reasonably good enough for Stepney workers and their families. This occupation finally convinced the government to open tube stations to anyone sheltering from the bombings. Sometimes we hark back to the Blitz as a period of the government actually intervening to help people. But one of the most iconic images of the Blitz, people sheltering in tube stations, was only possible because of working class organisation forcing the government to act. Aside from the class divisions, the myth of the Blitz spirit also conceals a spike in crime. The murder rate increased dramatically in the war, looting was widespread. Ballard Berkeley, who was a policeman at the time, said, some of the looters in the Café de Paris cut off of people's fingers to get wedding rings. Incidentally, that's the same Ballard Berkeley that played the Major in Faulty Towers. Nicholas Montserrat's book Breaking In, Breaking Out goes into detail about the same incident. The first thing which the rescue squads and the firemen saw as their torches poked through the gloom and the smoke and the bloody pit which had lately been the most chic cellar in London was a frieze of other shadowy men, night creatures who had scuttled within as soon as the echo ceased, crouching over any dead or wounded woman, any elegant corpse they could find, and ripping off its necklaces or earrings or brooch, rifling its handbag, scooping up its it's loose change. Oh my god. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is appalling, isn't it? Uh, yeah. The generation who actually lived through the horrors of the Blitz elected the Labour government of 1945, booting out Churchill in a landslide in favour of a social democratic party they actually trusted to rebuild the country in a way that would guarantee healthcare, jobs and school for all. Phil Pirotin, by the way, the guy who helped organise the Savoy Shelter occupation, was elected at the 1945 general election as MP for Mile End in Stepney as a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. The real psychological legacy of this era wasn't the mythical blitz spirit, but a sense of shared suffering and a realisation of what the state can do. This formed the bedrock of a consensus that lasted until the 70s, just long enough for the generation who did not experience the Blitz, but did experience all the benefits of full employment, a vastly expanded welfare state, and massive house-building programs, to elect Thatcher. White boomers voted overwhelmingly for Thatcher in their youth again and again from 79 onwards, perhaps hoping her evisceration of the British working class might summon the Blitz spirit that only existed in their brains into reality. 
The same demographic, white middle-class boomers who'd benefited from the post-war consensus then voted to wreck it, continued to reminisce about a war they never experienced. As the narrative around Brexit melted from thriving in a free trade utopia to bleak, self-induced apocalypse, we've been reminded that we survived the blitz, we can survive this. What's that, mate? You voted leave to leave the capitalist trade bloc in pursuit of political and economic self-determination? No, no, no. You voted for the return of the Luftwaffe. As the UK lurches slowly towards lockdown amid the global COVID-19 pandemic, botched and delayed decisions briefed to sycophantic journalists to test policies in the dead of night, the Blitz spirit is invoked again. The goats are gathered, both virgin and promiscuous. The queen has sipped the cursed soup and banged on the forbidden door. The Blitz spirit is risen. A gammon-faced man drink-drives his Land Rover through town, rolling down the window to cough on anyone who glances with insufficient respect at the poppy on his bull bars. The Blitz spirit. A woman in a North Face gilet wanders the aisles of Tesco, two trolleys full of hand sanitizer, one trolley for herself and her Bichon Frise, another to sell at quadruple price on Amazon. The Blitz Spirit. A landlord texts his tenants to make sure they pay rent on time as he sorts out his mortgage holiday on his seven properties. The Blitz Spirit. As I've said, the Blitz Spirit wasn't real then or now, but evoking it in a pandemic is even more boncarino than usual. The Blitz Spirit was a propaganda creation to reassure the population and demoralize the enemy. Reassuring people sounds okay, actually. You know, maybe Auntie Linda panic buying 400 foot of Andrex is evidence of that. But demoralizing the enemy? The enemy is a virus, not the Luftwaffe. You can't catch the Blitz. Nor can you vaccinate yourself from COVID-19 by shouting God save the Queen directly into a barmaid's face. Insisting you should be able to go down the Weatherspoons is not going to defeat a pandemic. But maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a scientist. I've never looked at this thing under a microscope. Maybe if you zoom in far enough, COVID-19 is actually a tiny Messerschmitt. Shake hands with an infected person. Little Germans set up a factory inside your cells, using protein to build more tiny Messerschmitts. Your white blood cells try and do something. Decide to occupy the Savoy Hotel of your body. The liver. The luxury organ. Pushing the government, your brain, to finally allow them to access the tube. Your circulatory system. Lymph. Blood. Blitz spirit won't help you here. You go down the pub, stiff up a lip, and defiant in the face of danger, you're actually helping the tiny Luftwaffe infiltrate all of your friends, then taking them home to attack your family. A tiny Luftwaffe you can't see. A tiny Luftwaffe with infinite ammo and infinite fuel, who can make more of themselves using your own body. Maybe we should be happy. Finally, a group of people obsessed with a war they never fought get to experience the suffering they delude themselves was the country's finest hour. The Blitz spirit was supposedly a spirit of collective determination, enduring hardship and doing what's necessary for everyone to survive. So it's strange that it's most often invoked to justify decisions that bring about the suffering of others in defense of selfish behavior. Maybe they just have a different understanding of Blitz spirit. We might look to fill Puritan's occupation in the Savoy, to force the government to act in the interest of the working class, whereas they want the right to loot the bodies of those who don't survive. Because it'd never be them, right? It'd never be them.
Hi, uh, sorry to interrupt, it's me, it's Jack. You alright? How's it going? Um, so, little editor's note here. Uh, since recording this segment, Godfrey Bloom, a man who got kicked out of UKIP after swatting a journalist with a conference brochure and referring to women at the party conference as sluts, has done this tweet. Well, we did close our pubs in the blitz. 60,000 people killed then. What happened to our nation? Godfrey Bloom, despite having the name of an aristocratic general from the Anglo-Zulu War, was born in 1949. It's also worth noting that UKIP, in its time a popular party with petty bourgeois boomer gammons like Bloom, was comparatively unpopular with the generation that lived through the Blitz. They were put off by them being quite similar to the fascists who dropped bombs on them. Sadly, uh, for me more than anything, but also you, uh, Bloom's bad tweet and the consequent dunkathon has perhaps changed this segment from original and interesting insight into, uh, I don't want to say hack, but I can't think of another word. Um, but I don't have time to make an entirely new segment, and you know what? It's, it's good. So if you have seen that tweet or any of the replies, please forget them. Uh, in particular, if you've noticed, the premise of one of my jokes here is kind of similar to a quite a right-wing comedian's reply to Godfrey Bloom on Twitter. Uh, know that I'm as angry about that as you, uh, and in addition to anger, uh, I'm also quite sad, but We can't do anything about it, so uh, keep calm and carry on. Hi, uh, sorry to interrupt, it's me again. Uh, Another little addition hot off the press. Ouch. Uh, This one's about Jamie Oliver, a millionaire celebrity chef who's recently sued by his workers for lost wages after they were allegedly sacked without notice other than a piece of paper pinned to a restaurant door. Jamie's doing a new show called Jamie, Keep Cooking and Carry On. Presumably chefs like Jack Monroe, who uh, you know, actually survived on food banks, were too busy right now um, doing, just doing other stuff. Or maybe Channel 4 just thought, knowing how good Jamie Oliver was at patronising working class children a few years back, uh, you know, they thought this is the guy to patronise working class adults too. This is our guy. See, and, and really what I'm saying here, guys, with both these editions is this is why you make your politics podcast about big ideas and try and get to universal concepts rather than the news cycle, uh, you know, because this, this is what happens. I'm starting to think maybe have I got news for you or trying their best? No, 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 no. I don't, no, I don't think that. That's wrong. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean, with additional music by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Additional voice work by Tom Burgess. If you'd like to support the podcast in some way, we recommend either Patreon subscriptions, online compliments, and remaining indoors. Please remain safe. <laughs>